Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This particular interview and story is an incredible one. United States Marine Brandon Long, injured in Afghanistan by an IED in his amazing and incredible journey back to the living again. He now rides a Harley-Davidson motorcycle all over the place. He's got a baby daughter. He's living in Florida. It's just an amazing story and one that you need to hear. And I just appreciated having him on the show, and you're going to appreciate his story. And I thank you very much for all you out there who's in the Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is U.S. Marine Brandon Long. And we are humbled and honored to have him here with us today. He was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And admittedly, he says at the age of five years old, he wanted to be a Marine. I mean, this man knew exactly what he wanted to do, and he went and he did it. After high school, he went into the Marine Corps, and uh, it's actually February 2009. He made it through boot camp. He made it through infantry school out in Camp Pendleton, and he was assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines out of San Mateo, California. It wasn't long afterwards uh, he was sent to Afghanistan for his deployment. That was in September of 2010. Interestingly enough, Brandon Long served under Lieutenant Robert Kelly, who was General Kelly's son, and who recently died, and I'm sure Brandon might talk a little bit about that. Lieutenant Kelly was his lieutenant. He served under him, and he said that he was just gung-ho Marine, wanting to get the job done, and it was an honor for Brandon to serve with Lieutenant Robert Kelly. He was reunited with his squad after being away from them for about two weeks. That was December 21st, 2010, and that was the day that would change his life. Well, on patrol that day, Brandon would step on an IED, and his life would change forever. He said that he went unconscious, and he had visions of his daughter, who hadn't been born yet, but he had visions of his daughter. And he said that it was just like being in heaven. He knew somewhere deep inside that he was going to survive whatever happened after this horrific explosion. And he's going to talk more about that as we get closer. Well, he was out. Um, actually, he made it back to Afghanistan with the medical uh, unit. And he was in and out of consciousness. They finally got him stabilized. And he was able to call his wife. He told his wife that he loved her, that he had been injured. His wife shortly thereafter went into labor. And it wasn't long afterward, afterwards, the grace of God, that Brandon was able to hear his daughter crying over the phone. Freaking amazing. Um, Brandon said it was the happiest and the saddest day of his life. Gives me chills just thinking about it. I can't even imagine. Brandon eventually made it back to the States, ETS, went back to Indiana sometime in the winter. And he said, hey, then he remembered it snowed up there. So his wife and himself and their new baby daughter moved to Florida. Unfortunately, uh, they separated uh, once they got to Florida. 
But Brandon was not to be held back. He had been told by his now ex-wife that he couldn't have a motorcycle because she was worried about him being hurt on it. Brandon, being the Marine and the man that he is, said, okay, the heck with this. I'm going down to Harley-Davidson, and I'm going to pick one up, which is what he did. And he ended up getting a a trike. And what Harley-Davidson did was they collaborated with Brandon. Brandon had a lot of great ideas about how how to retrofit this bike so he could ride it, freedom of the open road with his injury. Brandon uh, is on a second Harley-Davidson. This show is not about Harley-Davidson, but uh, but it helped him to get back to living his life again. And I got to say that uh, I, I recently met Brandon. Uh, he's a customer of the Adamek Harley-Davidson uh, group over in Jacksonville. And uh, Brandon said, hell yeah, he would do the interview. And I'm humbled and I'm honored to have this Marine on our show today. And I'm glad you're back, Brandon. I'm glad you're riding a motorcycle. I'm so very happy for your your family, your daughter, and uh, and for you. And God bless you, man. Thanks for being on our show today. I know. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, tell us about Fort Wayne, Indiana. Tell us what it was like growing up in the Long household. Um, pretty cold and pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> there's not a whole lot to do there, besides from making snowmen. But life in Indiana it was pretty chill, relaxing. You know, uh we grew up in the sub- suburbs, but uh, not far from the edge of town where I still was able to go out and goof off in cornfields, and it was pretty fun. Sounds like fun. You know, I, you know, a lot of us, I'll tell you, you said in your bio that you got in a little bit of trouble. Um, yeah. I can tell you, man, we're like kindred spirits because uh, <laughs> I've been there before, and uh, you said you got in a little bit of trouble, and you actually had to coerce. Uh, the sergeant major to to allow you to get it even into the Marine Corps. Tell us about that if you want. Uh, that that was an experience. I got into some trouble just drinking as a child, and at sixteen, I broke into a rival high school. You know, to just be a little rebel, and uh, it ended up having some pretty severe consequences. At that point, I was told I was no longer eligible for the Marine Corps because of my uh, charges and everything, and so I kept talking to my recruiter, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Dunlop. And I kept asking him, what can I do? What can I do? So we got in touch with the Commandant of the Marine Corps back in 2008. He denied me immediately, the Sergeant Major. uh, We wrote him a letter, and he said, you know, maybe we should give him a chance. So uh, the Sergeant Major and the Commandant uh, sat down and talked a little bit about it. And I was put on a probationary term when I got in. So the first time I messed up in the Marine Corps, I would be charged for my civilian offenses which wasn't my favorite thing to go into the Marine Corps for, but I did get to go into the Marine Corps. My file for the Marine Corps, there's thousands of pages, and a lot of them were signed by the general, or, uh, the Commandant and a Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. And it's, it's a crazy file getting into the Marine Corps, but uh, it, w- it worked out in my benefit. I'll give it that. That's awesome, man. So, Brandon, tell us about, you know, you said you had a mentor. One of your relatives had been in the Air Force, and uh, yes. you, you were pretty impressed with that. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, my mom's uncle, um, Andy Federspiel, he served in the, uh, in the Air Force, and he was a KC-130, I think the refueling jet. I can't remember exactly what it is, but uh, he was in charge of refueling planes. When he got out of his service, he just upheld that military manner for the rest of his life. I just, I always admired his self-discipline and just how he upheld himself in front of everybody and refused to let, you know, even the dumbest part of himself show out in public and I just truly admired him, and he uh, he told me that the military would make a man out of me, and I just wanted to prove to him that I could be the man that you know I want to be. And so, 
yeah, he, he definitely encouraged me to join the military, and he told me that it wouldn't be easy, but it would definitely make me proud. He ended up dying of uh, lung cancer a couple years ago, so I was just proud that I, he got to see me go through. He got to see me become a Marine. He even got to see me after injury, and uh, he's been there for me every single step of the way. He's just a great guy, and I'm glad that he was in my life for me. Well, sorry about your loss, buddy. You know, it's, you know, well, thank it's, you. I it's, appreciate it's, that. It's tough. Um, you know, funny about your bio, though. You know, you sent me this Declaration of Independence bio. There's a lot there if we're going to get into <laughs> it. But you're, I think you're the first Marine that I've had on our show that has said that you actually had fun in boot camp and in infantry school. Tell us about oh, yeah. the, tell us if there's anybody, any young person, young man out there or lady that wants to go into the Marine Corps, what can they expect? What kind of fun can they expect? Well, when it comes to fun, uh, I just got over my drill instructors yelling at me. Honestly, they've never met my mom, so my mom was a lot harsher than them. So it just got to a point where it was kind of fun. The way they'd yell at us got kind of funny. And uh, I'd end up just doing things on purpose just to get yelled at so that my drill instructors would be mad. It became a game. See who can mess up the most in a day just for fun, you know? So how many extra push-ups do you think you did? <laughs> oh, I have done hundreds, if not thousands. <laughs> awesome, man. So let me I ask you. I got a drill instructor, a dickhead, and that didn't work out too well in my favor. Man, that would have been like, you know, <laughs> a front lean and rest for like half a day or something, you know? Oh, yeah. It was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, man. So, you know, I know, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, the Marine, the Marine Corps uh, dress uniform. And I got to say, it's probably, as an Army guy, you know, it's probably one of the most elegant, badass-looking uniforms on the face of the planet. Absolutely. When you graduated, do you guys wear that upon graduation? Did you get to wear that uniform? Um, you don't wear the actual dress blues. Um, you wear your khaki shirt with your blues pants upon your official graduation. The day before that, you wear your green pants with your khaki shirt, and we call it your piss cover, so your green cover. But... As far as wearing the actual uniform, I didn't wear that until probably my Marine, my first Marine Corps ball. Awesome. So let me ask you this. When you graduated, who showed up? Um, I was able to get my mom, my dad, my sister, my aunt, and another uncle that was actually in the Air Force. I was able to get him to come out. Pretty cool, man. So how did you feel when you graduated? I felt amazing. Uh, I felt on top of the world, considering it's how I... I knew I, I come from a troubled past, and I knew that I had accomplished my dream and that there was no, nothing in the world was going to take that away from me. Uh, I felt amazing. Congratulations. So so you're, you're stationed out at Camp Pendleton. Yes, sir. California. How long were you at that base before you got orders for your first deployment? Um, we went to – I got stationed with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines around uh, the beginning of, or of August – and then from there, we did probably five, six months of workup before we found out exactly what we were doing. It wasn't probably until like March or February of 2010 that we found out, okay, we're going to go to Afghanistan. And then from there, we focused most of our efforts on preparing for that deployment. So what were you and your fellow Marines thinking when you guys got those orders? I mean, we were, we were at war, so we knew probably, you guys probably knew you were going to go. What was, the, what was the attitude in your unit? Honestly, I think most of us were just excited, you know, like, hell yeah, this is what we signed up for. I mean, we joined the infantry to protect our country, and uh, we're going to actually get that opportunity. So I think most of us were excited. I mean, you'd be a liar to say that you weren't somewhat nervous, 
because, I mean, you're going to war. But I think overall, we were all just generally excited, ready to go, pumping each other up, you know, like, hell yeah, we get to do what we what we wanted to do. Awesome. So you guys flew over on uh, transport planes right into Afghanistan. Is that how it went down? Um, well, we left. We got on a uh, – we left – San Mateo on buses. Um, that's when we got to see our family. And then from there we went to an airport, which I can't remember the name of it. It's a, uh, I believe it was an air force base or something close to us. And then we got on a big, um, big plane and we flew to Maine there. We, um, we had a rest stop. We were able to make some phone calls, stretch our legs. And then from there we got on a plane and I can't remember the exact country we landed in for another little, pit stop while they refueled the plane and then we landed in Kyrgyzstan at an air force base where we spent i think a night or two just kind of getting ourselves mentally prepared and then from there we took one last plane but it wasn't a commercial plane it was a military plane into afghanistan and we unloaded at leatherneck and we were there for a couple days well you said that when you when you got to your ford operating base that things pretty much started to happen right away did you guys uh you know, you mentioned gung-ho and being prepared. Did you guys, did, did you know what you were there for? I mean, we knew that we were there to kind of help liberate these people, this town, because Sangin at the time was um, controlled by the Taliban and the people, they were, uh, in a sense, kind of bullied. You know, they, they had to shut their mouth or they'd be executed. And so we were there to help the people. And then there was a lot, it was a huge transport place for the Taliban and so we were just there to stop it you were saying that you uh you were only on a vehicle a few times and the rest of the time you were there you were walking the whole time right for for my portion of the deployment yeah I was there for three months and um from leaving Leatherneck we took a helicopter ride to our fob and then we took we all loaded up in seven tons and we got dropped off at our patrol base where I where my deployment happened the day I was injured we were supposed to be getting back from uh, our patrol and be moving up north where my uh my guys became vehicle mounted so what was so lieutenant your lieutenant lieutenant kelly yeah lieutenant kelly what was he what was he like was he your lieutenant right away right off the bat um yeah pretty much uh we had like three weeks where we didn't have a lieutenant initially but yeah he was my lieutenant the entire time very very motivated he was a corporal in the marine corps before he decided to go into the officer side so he already had an enlisted mindset. So great guy, definitely motivated to get the job done. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. I loved him. He was a great guy. Well, and, you know, and, and he wasn't the type of guy to be the son of a general to just, you know, flaunt that. He was a Marine right. through and he through. He was Marine true and true. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So so you mentioned, you know, you talked a little bit about right away. You knew that, that you were at war because you started to see some of your buddies already being injured. What was that like? How did you feel? Did it make you feel any different or did it motivate you even more? It was a culture shock at first. Um, the, fir- the first person I remember seeing officially injured, I mean, uh, it definitely it, it took me a second to realize, okay, this this shit's real. It's, it's not a joke anymore. I'm not training. This is real. And so it was definitely a culture shock. And it, it became hard, um, especially not knowing you know, did they make it? Are they okay? Did they lose something? Are they coming back? Um, that became more of the hardest part because you'd watch someone get injured and, you know, you're sitting there crying, thinking about them. But then after that, you don't know anything. You know, you got to wait and hope that somebody updates you. That was probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Now, were you guys just operating with other Marines or did you operate with any other forces on our side? 
uh, just Marines. And then we had the Afghan National Army that was um, stationed. We had a squad of Afghan National Army at every patrol base. What were those guys like? Different. Uh, that's for sure. Um, if they weren't smoking hash, they were just being weird. Um, but they were they were different. That's for sure. Yeah. Were they well trained or what? Not really. No, they were they were goofballs. Uh, we'd get we'd do a patrol and then we'd get back from that patrol and they'd say, "Oh yeah, we just passed like three IEDs." Like, wait a minute, why didn't you tell us? We could have disarmed them, you know, or we could have been injured. You're a dummy. But they they weren't too smart. <laughs> You know, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, who's who's, right. who's writing up these op orders, you know, and but that's, you know, so you guys are over there, you know, you're in the you're in the shit right away. You know, you wake up, you're saying this is war. You're out there doing your job and your job was basically what diffusing IEDs or what intel gathering. What were you guys doing? Mostly. um yeah, I mean, we did we did disarm a lot of the IEDs. Um, we were just controlling the green zone because um, the area that my platoon was at was called the green zone, so where all the vegetation was, and that's where they moved a lot of stuff through. And it was very heavy fighting there because they can camouflage themselves within the plants and the corn. So we had to just simply take over the green zone, get it back in American hands, and. Um, Pretty much just make it a safe place again. Yeah. What was the Taliban like? What were they like as far as a fighting force? Um, very weak. I mean, they, they're very inaccurate when it comes to shooting. They're just praying and spraying. Um, and then uh, we just didn't like that they would shoot at you from one side. They drop a weapon and then walk out on the other side and expect to be treated like a, just an innocent person. Like, what are you talking about? Was, we saw you. But uh, they tried not to expose themselves at the best that they could. There was one building that would raise a flag either before or after we took shots. But that was about the most we ever physically saw them. Yeah. So tell us about the um, tell us about the, d- the day that you were injured. What, what was that mission all about? Um, we were supposed to go out and um, just kind of patrol our area of operations one last time before we all loaded up and we were supposed to be replaced by another unit and my guys were supposed to go up to Wishtan Valley and do the rest of the deployment there. So we were just kind of doing our last few patrols around the area of operations and um, I was uh, I was point that day uh, operating the metal detector and uh, everything was going normal until we got out by the Helmand River. And out there, it's just a bunch of river rocks with the occasional bush or two. And um, so when I, I was out there, I did the same job the day before. Uh, but this day, um, I went out there and there was stacks of rocks, about five rocks on, you know, spread apart wide enough for like a tractor or a vehicle to get through. But then every five feet going down each side. And so I've got my metal detector out and I'm trying to find any source of wires or anything that could lead me to an IED. And um, I'm having no luck. But then after about half a mile of, you know, detecting and looking, I see that on the right hand side, there's a path that's the same concept, but a lot closer and smaller for foot traffic. Um, So the rocks are probably every foot, foot and a half apart. But it's still about five rocks stacked. And it led to a bush that you could see was clearly cut down overnight so that you could see what was on the other side. And uh, upon looking over that bush, I saw that there was about 50 stacks of those rocks in like a 10-foot circle. And in order to call out EOD, you have to find a wire or a pressure plate or something that signifies that there is an explosive there. 
And so my job at this point was to find something like that. So I'm looking around the bush. Um, I don't see anything. And I figured, you know, I've got to get a better look at this. Maybe the pressure plate or something is on the other side. But I wanted to I had to step over because I couldn't go around. And so when I stepped over, I tried to put my foot in a spot that I thought was safe and come to find out that's where the pressure plate was. What went down immediately? You just explosion. Yeah, as, as soon as I stepped on it, um, I remember, you know, getting tossed in the air a little bit and landing on my side. I was on my right side and I opened my eyes and all I can think is, damn, this really just happened. And uh, so I lay onto my back um, and I, I knew, OK, I, I probably lost a leg or two. You know, let's see how bad this is. And it's hard for really hard for me to breathe. And so I, I look down and I lift up my right leg and I ended up pulling my bone out of what was left of my leg. Um, and upon seeing that, I ended up passing out. Um, and that's when I had the visions of, you know, seeing my ex-wife, seeing my daughter and what I think was heaven or something. I'm not 100 percent sure, but it was definitely beautiful. And then um, I regained consciousness as they had finally stopped the bleeding. Um, and we had to wait on the helicopter to come in and pick me up. And the whole time I wasn't allowed any morphine or any painkillers because it would have stopped my heart with all the bleeding issues that I had. So I just had to kind of tough it out. And my guys, they did an amazing job of keeping me calm. I mean, I handled it a little poorly just because it hurt really bad. But I wish I would have handled it differently. But my guys were on top of everything. My corpsman, uh, Doc McPhee, was just phenomenal. He did his job to the best that he could. And uh, I got picked up once they loaded me on the helicopter. The medics saw that my stomach was starting to get bigger and bigger from the internal bleeding. So... The medic there cut my stomach open and drained out the blood. And at that time, that's when a rock fell out of my stomach. And the rock was about the size of my heart. Uh, it had shot through my right leg up through my uh, intestines and lodged right underneath my lung. And uh, from there, they got me to the hospital. They did put me under on the plane because then they had more medical procedures that, or stuff that they could do the proper medical procedures for. So I was unconscious once they got me on the plane. But other than that, I was awake for the entire thing. I remember 90% of it. It was pretty crappy. <laughs> yeah, you know, amazing that you're that, that that they were able to save you. I mean, when you think about all it the stuff is. that went down in a nasty atmosphere like that with bacteria and all that shit everywhere. Um, and the thing is, like, I do have a family member that died in Vietnam of almost the exact same injuries. Wow. So, I mean, just the fact that I was able to make it home is truly amazing. Absolutely amazing. Was anybody else hurt the same day you were injured? Um, I do not believe so. The guy that behind was behind me, I know he was knocked down from the concussion of the explosion. But as as far as I'm aware, nobody was injured. Nobody else was injured from that um, explosion. How long was it after that that they stabilized you that you were able to call your wife? Um, it was honestly probably about eight hours. I went um, from the time they put me out on the helicopter. It was like a 10 minute ride to the hospital, the field hospital. And um, from there, they did the initial cleaning, um, got most of the debris out of my legs. And then they had me on a bunch of heavy sedatives to keep me out. But my body doesn't really handle sedatives too well. And I ended up coming to um, in the like recovery room where not really a recovery room, but you're supposed to be unconscious until you get to Germany. And uh, I ended up waking up not long after my surgery, and I still had a, a breathing tube down my throat. So when I woke up, I couldn't breathe, and 
that's how they knew that I was conscious and they had to pull it out. And then I'd say, yeah, about eight to 10 hours after the time I was injured was when I was able to call home. So when you talked to your wife, what was that conversation like? Um, they couldn't really understand me because of all the drugs I was on to keep me, you know, sedated. Um, I guess cuss words were very clear, but everything else wasn't too good. (laughs) But, um, the second phone call when my daughter was born, I was a little more coherent. I could talk a little better. And, um, that phone call was truly amazing. Just getting to hear my daughter crying in the background because she had just been born. And I mean, it brought tears to my face. That's for sure. That's amazing, man. You know, I'm truly blessed to have you here. I mean, I know that the road back has been a has been a long one. It's been a challenge, but you know, you've had the character to get this far, and and just an, an incredible story. You know, none of us listening, we don't even know how we would react to a situation like that. And and you mentioned it so nicely, how great it was that your team was able to save your life. And yeah, I'm, just, I'm very blessed that I was around that group of men. I mean, they're, they're the best men in the world. I, I trained absolutely with probably the best men in the world. I'm so glad to have been with them. That's a great tribute. So you you convalesced for a while over there, and then you came back to the States. Yeah, I, uh, I was there. I was in Afghanistan for probably another day and a half after I was injured. And then I went to Germany where I stayed for about two days just so they can, like, decontaminate me and get me back to the States. And uh, so about – Four days, five days after I got injured, I was finally back here at the United States, and I was at Bethesda, uh, which is now the new Walter Reed. That's up in Maryland, right? Bethesda. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, so you went to Bethesda Army or Marine Corps Hospital, military hospital, and did you start your rehab right away? How did it go down? Did you just rest a while? Um, what was when going I was on? at Bethesda, the, the rehab didn't really start. It was mostly continuing to clean my wounds and get me just so that I could function um, and try to slowly wean me off of the pain meds. And then after, I think I was at Walter Reed for about five or six weeks. Um, and then I went over to Walter Reed. Um, or I, I'm sorry, I was at Bethesda for like five or six weeks. And then I went to Walter Reed well, the Army Medical Center where I did my prosthetics and the last bit of my recovery. And then when I was getting really good at my prosthetics, they closed that Walter Reed and moved it over to Bethesda. So it'd be one big medical center. Can you talk a little bit about the rehab? What was it like with the prosthetics? Was it, it was obviously diff- it's a major transition. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. it was difficult. Uh, you start since I'm a double above the knee, um, you start in what we call like shorties or stumpies. And it only has you lifted off the ground probably three inches. And that's where you kind of start to figure out how your legs move and how to, how to actually work it. And uh, it was difficult at first. It took a lot of energy and a lot of effort. But I got up to um, six foot two and I was walking every bit five to six miles every single day um, before I had to have surgery to fix the bone that was growing back. That's awesome that you're able to get into it that quickly. You know, how long were you in the States before they brought your daughter, before you first Um, got to see her? What's your daughter's name? My daughter is Claire. I got to see her when she was seven days old. And they kept saying, no, we can't bring her in here. You're not decontaminated, all this other stuff. And I remember yelling at the highest ranked person at the medical place, like, I don't give a crap what you got to do. I'm going to see my daughter. And so they brought in this... um, this machine, they shut out all the lights, and it's kind of like a big black light machine that 
produced these ultraviolet lights throughout the whole room and it took them about 20 minutes and then after that my daughter was able to come through and i got to see her <laughs> what was that moment like man it after, was amazing yeah what you had just been through it was it was truly amazing and knowing that like she's the biggest reason i'm still here because it's it's weird her soul i don't know how you explain it i kind of got to see her and, and meet her soul before she was born and i remember that soul or her saying that it's okay you know i understand if you can't make it and it's okay to go and meanwhile mentally i'm like i'm not leaving you i'm gonna be there for you so she was the biggest biggest thing for my, my survival and i fought and i fought so i could see her so that day was it was truly amazing there's not much you can say to that i mean that's no. that's awesome man you know um it's pretty cool so you went through your rehab and, and you're, you're, you're gaining strength. You're learning how to walk on new legs again, you yep. know, and, and how long did all that take before you got back to Indiana and started to freeze your rear end off? Um, it was almost, uh, I was a couple months shy of exactly two years from the day I was injured before I moved home. I moved home at the end of September, so I only had like two and a half months and it would have been the two-year mark. Um, but after I had that revision surgery, I could no longer walk. Um, there was an accident in surgery, so I was permanently wheelchair bound. So my physical therapy changed from walking to just being able to push and maintain my body weight. So I spent the last year doing that for physical therapy and I thought I was ready to go home and I got home to Indiana and it was cold and there was ice everywhere and it doesn't matter how hard you push, you still stay there. <laughs> so uh, I knew right then and there, I got to gotta leave this place too much. So you all went down, you, you went directly down to Jacksonville? That was the decision or what happened? Um, we went to St. Augustine and we stayed at a hotel in Jacksonville initially, but we decided St. Augustine is kind of where we want to be because they had the best school systems. So we did a little bit of research because I wanted my daughter to get the best education she could. So we found out that St. Uh, John's County here in St. Augustine has the best school district. So we moved here to St. Augustine and have never regretted it since. Well, we're certainly glad you're a Floridian now. Um, that's oh, cool, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I know you're enjoying the sun. I don't know, maybe not all this rain we've been having lately. But so, you know, unfortunately – you know, the, you did separate from your wife, and um, you know I'm sure the daughter is obviously the strong bond between you all, and uh, that's an amazing thing in and of itself. But so, you said in your uh, bio that your wife had said, "I don't want you on a motorcycle because you're only yeah. going to hurt yourself more." So, yeah. you know, the rebel thing, I get it. I can see it early on. You know, the high school stuff going down and this amazing freaking will to survive and to see your daughter and to live your life again to the fullest. And um, so you started collaborating with Harley Davidson. What's up yes. with that? Tell us how that went down. Well, see, I'm accident prone. I'm very <laughs> accident prone, which is kind of why she didn't want me on a bike. Um, but I decided, oh, well. <laughs> and so I go there and I buy my first Harley. And um, I was looking for something I could attach a sidecar to. But as I started talking with John Armstrong, who's the guy I bought my first bike from, we start collaborating on different ideas. And then I, uh, I got my heart set on a trike and I was picking out this red trike. And as we're going to sign paperwork on it, John just happens to look over and say, oh, yeah, that's the same kind of bike, but it's got a custom paint job. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah. So I look at this bike and I fell in love. And so I, I went ahead and I purchased it. 
And then we had to sit down and figure out, okay, how am I going to shift and how am I going to break? Because I can't use just my front brake. Um, so we started doing some research and um, a couple of gentlemen over there were able to find, uh, one gentleman was able to find a um, electronic shifter from England. And then he also, also found a um, double brake lever from England. So we were able to buy both of those. It took about three months for everything to get here installed and for me to finally ride away. But they were they were great as far as sitting down with me, helping me figure out kind of what I want, how I'm going to do this, and making sure that they weren't putting me on a bike that wasn't going to be safe for me. They were great. That's awesome. So what is it like, you know, when you're on your Harley and you're out there opening it up? What, what is it? What's it feel like to you? I feel like Superman. <laughs> It just it feels amazing. Um, the wind in my face, just the fact that I have control, con- complete control over this motorcycle. It's not a car, and I just feel so much more free. It's amazing. Is it the red one? So you do have a red one. You have a red trike. No, no. I, I bought that orange one with a custom paint job, and then I ended up having a motorcycle accident last year. Um, so that bike uh, insurance ended up totaling that one so i figured the next bike i'd go with all the bells and whistles so i got the radio and gps and all that stuff for the second bike and this bike has just been amazing to me i got close to five thousand miles on it already i just love it what's the longest trip you've taken on it uh well distance wise was probably 200 miles but as far as like how long i've been on the bike i've been on the bike for a solid 13 hours straight Nice. Or just stopping to get gas, you know, and or maybe stopping to use the restroom. But 13 hours is my record so far. <laughs> awesome, man. <laughs> Pretty soon you'll be hitting the California coast. You know, you're probably... Oh, getting- I already got a bike uh, bike trip planned for next summer. I'm heading to Colorado, Texas, California, Washington, and Montana. That sounds really cool, man. So, yeah, freedom of the open road. I can't imagine wind in your face. It's It seems amazing it seems like a miracle man and then it's cool let me ask you this that like i could have been denied this you know and like now i have the opportunity to experience it again i mean it just it means a lot more to me now and i'm sure it does and that's really a great and amazing story you know let me ask you this if you had to do it all over again would you do it over again absolutely absolutely knowing that i was going to get injured and knowing the path that i've lived i would do it again in a heartbeat because I love the guys that I served with. I love this country. It's a great place to live. You know, we got people discriminating on it, which makes no sense. I would do it again in a heartbeat because this country is beautiful and I love the people in it. Couldn't agree with you more, Brandon. Let me ask you this. So what is um, what would you want the civilian population to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? You know, one of the reasons for our radio show it's to diminish the negative stereotyping of our veterans. And, you know, you, right. something happens, the first thing they ask is that a veteran, somebody's gone wacko, you know, hair trigger fingers. And what, right. do you, what do you want civilians to know? Honestly, we're no different than them. We've seen things, we've been through things, but it doesn't mean you can't talk to us. It doesn't mean we're not civil people. Uh, we're just as good as anybody else, you know. Um, yeah, we're, we're not monsters. We're just normal people. We did something different than you, but please don't look at us any different. You know, we love you. That's why we did it. Uh, so just give us the, the amount of respect that we at least deserve. You know, I'm not saying you need to buy things from me, but I thank you for your service and just acknowledging what we've been through. I mean, that, that means the world to us. It really does. 
and not every scar is visible. That's the biggest thing. I have a lot of friends that have been through a lot more than I have, but they don't look like me. They look just like you and everybody else, just normal as can be. But the scars are deep down inside, and we're not monsters because of them. So well said. If there's like a if there's a young person out there, male or female, that's uh, transitioning out of the service, you know, and they have seen combat and they're in a bad place. Based on what you reach out, yeah. What would you? There you go. Reach out. What would you want them to know? Just reach out. There's so many people out there, and there's multiple organizations that will take you in and help you out the best that they can. And if there's not organizations, there's other brothers out there that if they find out you're struggling, they might not know your service or know you from the service, but you share that title. There's people that will take care of you. Absolutely. Just reach out. And I mean, we've lost a lot of good men to suicide and we still do every single day. It's just not worth it. You know, reach out to people. Don't let other people get you down. Some great wisdom there, Brandon. So let me ask you, what is, um, what does freedom mean to you? It's, uh, it's really hard to put exact words on it. I mean, freedom is my family, my friends, this beautiful country. I mean, it's hard to put an exact term to freedom. Um, it means everything to me. Um, I've fought and defended this country's freedom because I refuse to let it change. Uh, my, our forefathers fought for us to live a certain way, and that, that's freedom. Um, and I'm going to keep it that way. And I'm sure you will, and you are. Uh, let me ask you this, man. So do you have a, a personal quote, one of your own, a Brandon Long quote that keeps you going or that motivates you to just drive on? Some, uh, well, some... One thing I tell myself um, is just shut up and be a Marine. Because I'm a Marine, I've got that mental mindset. So when I'm falling down you know, and I'm getting low on myself, I tell myself just to shut up and be a Marine again. So, I mean, I guess uh, just shut up and keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> that Hey, man, that works, you know. It gets hard, but you just it's up to you to persevere. You know, and I'm glad you pointed out, you know, something, Brandon, that speaks volumes about you as a person. You were you pointed out that sometimes the scars aren't visible. And you say, you know, they don't look like me, that, you know, you're not any less of a person without your legs. In fact, you're a, you're a lot more. And right. There's people that you can't see, you know, where you can't see something visible like that. It is. It's excruciating for them. And for you to point that out after all you've been through is a testimony to you as a person. And your spirit is just amazing, man. I'm telling you, your daughter, your daughter has a lot to be proud of. And uh, you uh, you exemplify the very best of what America has to offer. You know, our young men and women who... uh, who served this country with pride and distinction. And I can't tell you how it, you know, it gets to my grill sometimes too, you know, when they say things about veterans and about the people who have helped protect this country. And, you know, I, I really feel good knowing that there's Marines like you out there somewhere in the world, making sure that I can sleep in my freaking bed here at home, all comfy and warm. So you represent one of the greatest organizations in the world. And, and I'm, I'm just happy to have you here on the show. and uh, Thank you. You humble me, man. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you next week up in uh, Jacksonville. We got a special Absolutely. day. A week from Saturday. and um, I'll be bringing the motorcycle, too. I can't wait, man. We're going to do some <laughs> shit up there. But but I, Absolutely. I, I just, uh, I'm really honored to have you here on Strata Combat Radio. And I know that your story 
can help people out there. And, and I'm, I'm glad to our listeners, too, that take the time to hear stories like Brandon Long's U.S. Marine Corps veteran who's out there riding a Harley Davidson again after some of the mo- after a very horrific accident. And I'm honored to know you, man. Is there um, anything? Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. I really do appreciate it. And I hope, you know, even if I if this reaches out to one person, I mean, I think it's a job well done. Thank you, Brandon. I'll be seeing you soon, man. I appreciate your time. Hey, absolutely. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. God bless you, man. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free. And combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Hey.